Chapter Three of Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Wallace. I have a goad. The auberge of Boucher Saint Nicolas was among the least pretentious I have ever visited, but I saw many more of the like upon my journey. Indeed, it was typical of these French highlands. Imagine a cottage of two stories, with a bench before the door, the stable and kitchen in a suite, so that Modestine and I could hear each other dining, furniture of the plainest, earthen floors, a single bedchamber for travellers, and that without any convenience but beds. In the kitchen, cooking and eating go forward side by side, and the family sleep at night. Anyone who has a fancy to wash must do so in public, at the common table. The food is sometimes spare. Hard fish and omelette have been my portion more than once. The wine is of the smallest, the brandy abominable to man, and the visit of a fat sow grouting under the table and rubbing against your legs is no impossible accompaniment to dinner. But the people of the inn, in nine cases out of ten, show themselves friendly and considerate. As soon as you cross the doors, you cease to be a stranger. And although these peasantry are rude and forbidding on the highway, they show a tincture of kind breeding when you share their hearth. At Boucher, for instance, I uncorked my bottle of Beaujolais, and asked the host to join me. He would take but little. "'I am an amateur of such wine, do you see,' he said, "'and I am capable of leaving you not enough. In these hedgings the traveller is expected to eat with his own knife. Unless he ask, no other will be supplied.' With a glass, a wang of bread, and an iron fork, the table is completely laid. My knife was cordially admired by the landlord of Boucher, and the spring filled him with wonder. "'I should never have guessed that,' he said. "'I would bet,' he added, weighing it in his hand, "'that this cost you not less than five francs.' When I told him it had cost me twenty, his jaw dropped. He was a mild, handsome, sensible, friendly old man, astonishingly ignorant, his wife, who was not so pleasant in her manners, knew how to read, although I do not suppose she ever did so. She had a share of brains, and spoke with a cutting emphasis, like one who ruled the roast. "'My man knows nothing,' she said, with an angry nod. "'He is like the beasts,' and the old gentleman signified acquiescence with his head. There was no contempt on her part, and no shame on his. The facts were accepted loyally, and no more about the matter.' I was tightly cross-examined about my journey, and the lady understood in a moment, and sketched out what I should put into my book when I got home. Whether people harvest or not in such or such a place, if there were forests, studies of manners, what, for example, I and the master of the house say to you, the beauties of nature, and all that? And she interrogated me with a look. It is just that, said I. You see, she added to her husband, I understood that. They were both much interested by the story of my misadventures. "'In the morning,' said the husband, "'I will make you something better than your cane. Such a beast as that feels nothing. It is in the proverb, dur comme un âne. You might beat her insensible with a cudgel, and yet she would arrive nowhere. Something better. I little knew what he was offering. The sleeping-room was furnished with two beds. I had one, and I will own I was a little abashed to find a young man and his wife and child in the act of mounting into the other. This was my first experience of the sort. 
and if I am always to feel equally silly and extraneous, I pray God it be my last as well. I kept my eyes to myself, and know nothing of the woman except that she had beautiful arms, and seemed no whit embarrassed by my appearance. As a matter of fact, the situation was more trying to me than to the pair. A pair keep each other in countenance. It is the single gentleman who has to blush. But I could not help attributing my sentiments to the husband, and sought to conciliate his tolerance with a cup of brandy from my flask. He told me that he was a cooper of Alle, travelling to Saint-Étienne in search of work, and that in his spare moments he followed the fatal calling of a maker of matches. Me he readily enough divined to be a brandy merchant. I was up first in the morning, Monday, September 23rd, and hastened my toilette guiltily, so as to leave a clear field for Madame the Cooper's wife. I drank a bowl of milk, and set off to explore the neighbourhood of Bouchy. It was perishing cold, a grey, windy, wintry morning. Misty clouds flew fast and low, the wind piped over the naked platform, and the only speck of colour was away behind Mount Mézanque and the eastern hills, where the sky still wore the orange of the dawn. It was five in the morning, and four thousand feet above the sea, and I had to bury my hands in my pockets and trot. People were trooping out to the labours of the field by twos and threes, and all turned round to stare upon the stranger. I had seen them coming back last night, I saw them going afield again, and there was the life of Boucher in a nutshell. When I came back to the inn for a bit of breakfast, the landlady was in the kitchen combing out her daughter's hair, and I made her my compliments upon its beauty. "'Oh, no,' said the mother. "'It is not so beautiful as it ought to be. Look, it is too fine.' Thus does a wise peasantry console itself under adverse physical circumstances, and by a startling democratic process the defects of the majority decide the type of beauty. "'And where,' said I, "'is monsieur?' "'The master of the house is upstairs,' she answered, "'making you a goad.' "'Blessed be the man who invented goads. "'Blessed the innkeeper of Boucher-Saint-Nicolas "'who introduced me to their use. "'This plain wand, with an eighth of an inch of pin, "'was indeed a sceptre when he put it in my hands. "'Thenceforward, Modestine was my slave. "'A prick, and she passed the most inviting stable door.' A prick, and she broke forth into a gallant little trotlet that devoured the miles. It was not a remarkable speed when all was said, and we took four hours to cover ten miles at the best of it. But what a heavenly change since yesterday! No more wielding of the ugly cudgel, no more flailing with an aching arm, no more broadsword exercise, but a discreet and gentlemanly fence. And what, although now and then a drop of blood should appear on Modestine's mouse-coloured, wedge-like rump? I should have preferred it otherwise, indeed, but yesterday's exploits have purged my heart of all humanity. The perverse little devil, since she would not be taken with kindness, must even go with pricking. It was bleak and bitter cold, and, except a cavalcade of stride-legged ladies and a pair of post-runners, the road was dead solitary all the way to Pradelle. I scarce remember an incident but one. A handsome foal with a bell about his neck came charging up to us upon a stretch of common, sniffed the air martially as one about to do great deeds, and, suddenly thinking otherwise in his green young heart, put about and galloped off as he had come, the bell tinkling in the wind. For a long while afterwards I saw his noble attitude as he drew up and heard the note of his bell, and when I struck the high road the song of the telegraph wires seemed to continue the same music. 
Pradel stands on a hillside, high above the Allier, surrounded by rich meadows. They were cutting aftermath on all sides, which gave the neighbourhood, this gusty autumn morning, an untimely smell of hay. On the opposite bank of the Allier, the land kept mounting for miles to the horizon. A tanned and sallow autumn landscape, with black blots of firwood and white roads wandering through the hills. Over all this the clouds shed a uniform and purplish shadow, sad and somewhat menacing, exaggerating height and distance, and throwing into still higher relief the twisted ribbons of the highway. It was a cheerless prospect, but one stimulating to a traveller, for I was now upon the limit of Villy, and all that I beheld lay in another county, wild Gévaudan, mountainous, uncultivated, and but recently disforested from terror of the wolves. Wolves, alas, like bandits, seem to flee the traveller's advance, and you may trudge through all our comfortable Europe and not meet with an adventure worth the name. But here, if anywhere, a man was on the frontiers of hope, for this was the land of the ever-memorable beast, the Napoleon Bonaparte of wolves. What a career was his! He lived ten months at free quarters in Gévaudan and Vivarais, he ate women and children and shepherdesses celebrated for their beauty. He pursued armed horsemen. He has been seen at broad noonday chasing a post-chaise and outrider along the king's high road, and chaise and outrider fleeing before him at the gallop. He was placarded like a political offender, and ten thousand francs were offered for his head. And yet, when he was shot and sent to Versailles, behold, a common wolf, and even small for that. Though I could reach from pole to pole, sang Alexander Pope, the little corporal shook Europe, and if all wolves had been as this wolf, they would have changed the history of man. Monsieur Elie Berthe has made him the hero of a novel which I have read, and do not wish to read again. I hurried over my lunch, and was proof against the landlady's desire that I should visit Our Lady of Pradel, who performed many miracles, although she was of wood and before three-quarters of an hour I was goading Modestine down the deep descent that leads to Langogne on the Allier. On both sides of the road, in big dusty fields, farmers were preparing for next spring. Every fifty yards a yoke of great-necked stolid oxen were patiently hailing at the plough. I saw one of these mild, formidable servants of the glebe, who took a sudden interest in Modestine and me. The furrow down which he was journeying lay at an angle to the road, and his head was solidly fixed to the yoke like those of caryatids below a ponderous cornice, but he screwed round his big honest eyes and followed us with a ruminating look, until his master bade him turn the plough and proceed to reascend the field. From all these furrowing ploughshares, from the feet of oxen, from a labourer here and there who was breaking the dry clods with a hoe, the wind carried away a thin dust like so much smoke. It was a fine, busy, breathing rustic landscape, and as I continued to descend, the highlands of Gévaudan kept mounting in front of me against the sky. I had crossed the Loire the day before. Now I was to cross the Allier, so near are these two confluents in their youth. Just at the bridge of Langogne, as the long-promised rain was beginning to fall, a lassie of some seven or eight addressed me in the sacramental phrase, Dos que vous venez? She did it with so high an air that she set me laughing, and this cut her to the quick. She was evidently one who reckoned on respect, and stood looking after me in silent dudgeon as I crossed the bridge, 
and entered the county of Gévaudan. End of chapter 3